0: Good day, good evening, and good screaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. And speaking of some of America's all time greatest renegades, this episode's guest is somebody I first crossed paths with when he and his then sidekick were on a very mixed kind of a bill that turned out to be the Last Dead Kennedy show at UC Davis in California. And, um,. The first on was Frank, the Jewish lesbian folk singer. And then I think this next guy was next. I'd heard the name, had no idea who he was. And he basically sat down, played a guitar, and, you know, did a lot of satire and put a TV on his head for a song called Stuffin' Martha's Muffin. MTV, get away from me! I thought, okay, save college humor. We do MTV, get off the air, goddammit. Seven seconds played. We played mojo was very friendly we got to know each other a bit and they even spent time in denver and knew the same people from the denver wax track store that i did and even had a punk band there we ran into each other again i think at a butthole surfer show we were all on in buffalo new york maybe some other things and just started going to his shows and then um Eventually he shows up and his sidekick, who meant so much to the show, Skid Roper, was gone, and instead there was a whole band I later found out it was called the Toad Lickers, and they were all iconic mutants, basically, especially the wild as hell piano player who has also had Jerry Lee Lewis level moves, fingers to go with it. You know, he could have been Vladimir Horowitz, he could have been Billy Preston, but he was Pete Wet Dog Gordon, and this raised the energy to a whole new level. And then I think it was the same show. He, at one point, you know, and the audience was, a lot of it was a college audience, even maybe on the service a jo- male jock audience. But we loved him. I was there. And a s- lot of call and response at a mojo show. Ollie North! Ollie North, says the crowd jubilantly. And I thought, oh, damn him. Is there an asshole? Silence. And I thought, wow. We're more on the same page than I thought. And then, maybe 20 minute la- minutes later, came this long, half singing, half talking version of what should be America's national anthem. This land is your land. And it's not for people who own it. And it's not for people who fenced it. I didn't know about the other verses because that was what Woody Guthrie was saying. I thought, wow, he has much more of a heart in the same place as me. And I ran back and told him how much I loved the show. And before I knew it, his manager, who calls himself Bullethead, calls my guy Greg Workman at Alternative Tentacles and wants to know if I will make a country record with Mojo. And the result was Prairie Home Invasion, still in print, everybody, on Alternative Tentacles records. A so-called alt-country, now they call it alt-country even, or Americana, and I... I personally thought that album came out really well. Lots of fun adventures and getting and no mojo all the more. And then um, what happens? But he gets this great big country broadcaster gig with Sirius, and even a talk show called Lying Cock which I have been on and kept wanting to get back on. But they said, "Oh no, they canceled me again." As soon as Trump got on, they threw me off for good. So I'm hoping what we will have today is the passing of the torch and the heir apparent to lying cocksuckers. Plus, there is now a documentary movie out made by his bassist Earl B. Freedom, finally finished, called The, called, uh, the Mojo Manifesto. It's a beautiful piece of work. The pre-Mojo Nixon years, you know, make me love the man all the more. And without further ado, the, my favorite lying cocksucker himself, Mojo Nixon!
1: Hey, Jello, how you doing, man?
0: Well, obviously, I'm really happy to see you, happy to have you here, even if I have to see you on a screen instead of the same room. I mean, you don't you, you know. I, I, I want to say, uh,
1: on Stuff and Martha's Muffin, I was saying music television should be covered in jism. So I wasn't going as far <laughs> as you, but you left it. Music television should be covered in JSM. I have them, you know, sing that and chant that.
0: No, I learned a lot about the mojo vernacular and ways of words, as well as, um, you know, the way you and I saw things a lot the same, but from very, very different places. I mean, there was a there was a review of Dead Kennedy's Plastic Surgery Disasters and Trouser Press where they said, jell Offer has no sympathy for the common man. And I thought, like, damn right. They're all bullies at school who wanted to bully me into becoming more common and get rid of my hippie hair and this, that and the other. But then from where you came from and the Hamlet chicken plant disaster and what I was also getting from Daryl and Judy and Earth First, we did Where Are We Going to Work When the Trees Are Gone, And of sympathy for the actual timber workers and stuff. And I I, I I, gained much more of an empathy for what many people now call the common man or worse yet, dismisses flyover states. And you live in Cincinnati now, right? You're not in San Diego. I'm in Cincinnati. You know,
1: I, I always... Uh, early on I wanted to be Woody Guthrie. You know. And, and at some point I wanted to be Woody Guthrie. I also wanted to be Joe Strummer. I wanted to be Bruce Springsteen. And eventually, yeah, I, really eventually I had to know. be me. But but those are all, all part of the same idea. You know, we're gonna you know, I I'm for the working man and fuck the bosses. The bosses can lick my hairy asshole. Can we say that on this show? <laughs>
0: Dumped. Oh, well, this is my show. I don't have to answer to anybody from Sirius or anybody. Well, let, me, else let, me,
1: let, me, let me tell you about Lying Cocksuckers, uh, which is that you know called Lying Cocksuckers. It was a great show. I said every, everything I wanted to, and now they're paying me not to do it. Yeah, they. <laughs> I, it's in my contract. I just signed a new contract for two more years. It says, you know, political talk show Thursday night for, you know, one hour, and they're paying me not to do it. That's how, that's how radical the show was. Who else did you
0: have on besides me?
1: Uh, You know, I had like Kiki Friedman on and just, you know, people I knew. Uh, Right. You know, uh, I remember that guy uh, from Rolling Stone, Matt Taibbi. I had him on, he was a political writer. Oh,
0: lucky you. I've always wanted to meet that guy.
1: Yeah, he was a good guy. And I and I had a bunch of, you know, and I I had a bunch of I remember there was a guy I did a whole book on uh on the original uh heart on the National Lampoon. And I, you know, because you know, National Lampoon is kind of an un you know, people remember Animal House, but they don't remember the subversive nature of National Lampoon magazine in the oh, early right. 70s and you were the same well. age. Right. So yeah, it is but I would have, you know, different oddballs and weirdos and nut jobs on. And uh, but mostly, and then every now and then, uh, this is my proudest moment. Well, about once every quarter, instead of doing lion cocksuckers, I do turd talk. Turd talk was men talking about taking a shit, but the women would call in too. And I can't believe they let me, this was the idea me and Country Dick originally had. Somebody offered us a radio show in San Diego on 91X, the alternative station. This was like in 1990. And we wanted to do turn talk, you're on the bowl. That's how we are going to answer the phone. <laughs> I mean, I remember that from when we recorded
0: together at Ireland in Austin, Texas, with Stuart Sullivan and the Toad Lickers, you would often give a scientific analysis, you know, a yes. special news report on the shit you just took. Yeah, you, know, yes, you, yes. you were very analytical. This has been about done on my
1: whole life, right? I've, I've had whatever that irritable bowel thing my whole life. Now, booze and drugs are not helping. Yeah, you know, let's let's, you know, in my diet, you know, of deep fried pork is not helping. But uh I've had, you know, uh, bowel problems forever. I was trying to remember when did we make that album? What year did Prairie Home Invasion come out? Was that ninety four
0: maybe? I think we made it in ninety three and it came out in ninety four.
1: So it's coming Somewhere up on it. its thirtieth thirty year anniversary.
0: Good God. Is that right? Time fries when you're overworked. What can you do? Or
1: overindulge. <laughs> I want, uh, uh, are you, do you, do you like that album? Yes, I do. I was frustrating. Uh, you know, I'm used to being in the charge and you're used to being in charge. I was frustrating, I know. Uh, you know, so was, there was a little head button there.
0: Oh, I know. Uh, I could have but, been better about that for sure. I right, know.
1: I it, could. It, well, I got, I, I could have too, but, uh, but the point being, I, yeah, I like it. The, sonically, I mean, we got, you know, not only is me and the Toad Lickers playing way above our heads, we got some cats who could really play to come in there, and that raised oh, yeah. that raised everybody's game, right?
0: Oh yeah. Although well, it was interesting. Instead of what I later found out was a Segovia of the banjo, the new, or the modern Earl Scruggs, Danny Barnes. He played uh, and laid down some guitar because Paul Leary recommended him. I had no idea about his banjo skills. And the banjo guy you brought in, who did a perfectly good job, coincidentally, was the owner of the South by Southwest Festival at yes. the time. So.
1: That's how Mojo got his gig at South by Southwest. Yeah. And you remember we played, we played a gig. We played one gig, yeah. for Prairie Home Invasion at Liberty Lunch. Uh, Lewis Myers, he was the guy you're talking about. I'm sure he right, was the one who right. put that together. I tell you, Thank you, that, you know, I, I remember that gig. After the gig, I had such. A, I was trying to remember that your songs don't have the regular Chuck Berry changes, so it was hurting my brain to remember how all those songs went, and uh, I my brain hurts so bad. With I couldn't guy get who
0: in his head with his voice makes up songs. Yes.
1: <laughs> it happens well, to it, everybody. I, I came up. To, I went up to your house in uh, in San Francisco. And you yeah. would kind of, you know, hum it. Part of the problem is, I'm not really good at, like, if I hear a song on the radio, I can't just figure it out right away unless it's Chuck right. Berry song. So I'm sure right. I fucking... You had ideas in your head, and I fucked them up on my guitar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not entirely. No, 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 no. I mean, granted, one thing that I... Big mistake I made was I was also trying to combine it with... I always wanted to make an album with Evan Johns, but by this time, his drinking had become so extreme we had to take him back home after the first day of basic tracks yeah, no, he and so he's not he really out
1: what key we were in what he couldn't get the guitar right. in tune he he was not doing right. he was not well, doing well, more. more the point i mentally was trying to
0: get other people to substitute for that part of the what i thought the sound should be and i thought later you know this whole back porch hoedown thing you did for let's go burn old nashville down There should have been more of that if I just listened. So, uh, but overall, here we are. But but let's believe we're both
1: alive. I can't believe you're alive. I can't believe I'm alive.
0: Yeah, and at this point, I'm no longer thinking I'm going to be dead by 25. I'm going to be dead by 30. I can't believe I'm. I can't remember how old you are now. But now I'm right at this male menopause crisis age, where a certain horrible Paul McCartney song won't leave my head.
1: So I just turned. I think maybe I was born in '57. I think maybe you were born in in '58. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So yeah, you're a year younger than me. But yeah, we're we're all we're, we're all old. You know, uh, uh, there's not there's nothing nothing we can do about it.
0: Well, except mentally, it it's a, one of one of the great saving graces is we're both in some ways completely immature spoiled brats.
1: <laughs> and that keeps no, I, keeps I, us
0: feeling yeah, I'm like that a old. giant
1: 12-year-old. I'm like a 12-year-old <laughs> you gave Adderall to, thinking it would calm him down. It didn't calm him down. It just made him a, you know, made him a bigger pain in the ass.
0: Yeah. My father was a mental health professional as well as a rock climbing pioneer. So nobody ever put them drugs in me, but now but to the, for the Mojo manifesto movie, it, it's streamable, right? You can access it and watch oh, it. Yeah.
1: There's still, uh, it's taking, you know, there's a bunch of legal stuff you have to do to you know, get oh, clearances right. on a movie. Earl freedom. The bass player is taking care of that. Uh, Jello is in the movie and, uh, comports himself quite well. And, um, uh, well, that, the movie the, should the movie, be out. The, and, uh, the movie
0: survives in spite of me, basically. But what I want to get to.
1: also Because you hear the word, uh, oh, there's a, mo, a movie about Mojo Nixon. You think, well, it's just going to be all fucked up. And then you hear the bass player made it. Then you think it is really going to be fucked up. But somehow he made a good movie that connects with people. Oh, and much ca- so. I told him you just have to capture the essence of Mojo, the Mojosity. And I think well, well, I said, don't 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 try to make, you know, don't try to make civilians like me. Make the fans happy. And you know, I think <laughs> that's what he did.
0: Well, I mean, it's been so long since you put an album out, your fan base basically is what it has been, but it's still wide and the, the What I love about that movie is it fleshed you out more as the warm hearted human being I love so much and even more than I'd had before. So I'm going to start. Now I finally get to my usual opening
1: question. What created you? Uh, I think, uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. My mother is my parents grew up in the Depression in small towns in North Carolina. And my mother in particular was desperate to be middle class. You know, she she lived, uh, she had a good life. You know, she wasn't dirt poor or anything, but they had a, you know, they had an outhouse when she was a little girl. She, My mother desperately wanted to be middle class. She wanted it to be the Donna Reed show or My Three Sons. That was, you know, her idea of what middle class was. And, and no copperheads and, and, what, and, and moccasins in the outhouse. Yes. And so she, but the thing, <laughs> the thing she worried about the thing where we diverged at, at a young age she cared desperately about what the neighbors thought she would say what you know you can't do that what will the neighbors thought what will the neighbors think and i finally realized fuck the neighbors I don't give a shit what the neighbors think you know i fucking hate the neighbors i you know i'm not i'm not interested in being in their club Right, their club. How old were, were they, you were they?
0: This, how old were you when you had this revelation?
1: This is maybe, uh, maybe twelve. I remember I was. I told my father I wasn't going to go to church anymore, and he said, "That's fine, but if you don't go to church, you don't get to eat." So then I started thinking. I was like, "Well, okay, maybe." I, I gave the youth sermon and I read Bob Dylan's uh, "The Times They Are Changing" with Platt. I mean, I, here's here's what most freaked my mother out. Not that. Not that. But the fact that I had on plaid pants, apparently God, their invisible friend, doesn't like plaid pants. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, the, they might be in for a surprise. Who knows? I mean, I'll bet Jimmy Swaggart liked black pants. Yes, or Jimmy, plaid yeah, pants. Well,
1: here's the thing, too. I mean, if there's a heaven in hell, I want to go to hell. You know, Country Dick's down in hell. Hunter Thompson's in hell. Bob Mitchum. Bob Mitchum's definitely in hell go to hell and play cards the devil has a big card game on saturday night i want to be i want to go to the tape lee marvin you know lee marvin's hair
0: oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah um for those who don't know country dick montana was mojo's late best friend and a fellow fellow wild man who uh was mainly the drummer and occasional front man with a very low singing voice in the beat farmers, the guy with the longer blonde hair and often with a with a hat, and there was also briefly a, a kind of a, a super group, maybe a stupor group in real, uh, in real life called the pleasure barons. Then get it meant country, Dick and Mojo were in the same band. And it also meant Dave Alvin was there and Rosie Flores was there. Katie what? Moffat was there. And mm-hmm. when I met country Dick, he said, Oh yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, I used to be in a band called the penetrators and we opened for dead Kennedy's at the skeleton club. The first time he played in San Diego, that was cool. I mean, one of the regrets of my life was that, you know, I heard so much about him. I knew how tight you guys were. And then finally the beat farmers come to slims in San Francisco. And for some reason, was, Oh, I'll see him next time. They tour a lot. And then by the time the beat farmers got to Calgary country, Dick dropped dead on stage. So I you know, never Country got Dick to. Country
1: Dick was also in the Crawl Daddies. You know, the Crawl Daddies were one of the original 60s rock right, bands right. right in San Diego. And I was in the Crawl Daddies for like a half a minute. Uh, didn't do any recording. They they got rid of me. I was too rambunctious. <laughs> but Country Dick was playing was, the drummers in the Crawl Daddies. And, was Mike uh, you know, on in that the, band? Was Mike Stacks on the, say, yeah, on the Crawl Daddies too?
0: Yes. He, Mike Stacks was in the
1: Yeah, When I was in it, Mike Stacks had just come over from England. Okay. And, and it was Ron, Ron uh, Silva and Mike Stacks and some guy playing piano who was out of his fucking mind, who was, kind of <laughs> reminded me of Wet Dog. You know, <laughs> what you talked about Wet Dog, my piano player. You know, there, there's a lot of Jerry Lee in there. There's a little Sun Ra. Cool. And there's also, there's a, a lot of Terry Adams from NRBQ. You know, and, and he, he uh, you know, I'm a ham. Wet Dog's a bigger hand than I am. Sometimes he's not even touching the piano. He's just over there doing things. Well, in the studio,
0: he blew me away with how many other things he could play and how he was coloring songs with an organ, even the sarcastic version of Love Me, I'm a Liberal we did about Clinton people without having to change any of the words to this day. And he did a 70s FM radio organ just so... Nauseatingly beautifully, it was perfect for the song. Oh Wow, this guy has such a wide palette. I mean, that was another major what motive.
1: The, the, the pleasure barons are going to reunite on the outlaw West cruise. You know, I'm on this channel, Sirius XM. Hello, country. And we've done some cruises, and they're doing a West Coast one. It has all the West Coast bands on it, Uh, Social Distortion and X and the Blasters and Los Lobos and, uh, you know, all those kind of bands. Anyway, so everybody's going to be there except Country Dick. Uh, John Doe, Rosie Flores, Dave Alvin, me, Steve Berlin is going to play with us. And uh, we're going to do a tribute to Country Dick on the cruise. I've been having to relearn all those songs here recently.
0: When When is that cruise?
1: The cruise is in three weeks. Wow. Uh, because just now the members of the band are starting. Uh, I get emails. Oh, what that song in? Which range are we using? You know?
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay, well back back to what created you. You talked a little bit about your mother. Um and uh one one, one thing that blew me away in the movie was your father.
1: Yeah. See, my father was kind of a, uh, I was very much, I'm very much my father's son. My actual name is really uh, Neil Kirby MacMillan Jr. Uh, You know, I look and sound exactly like him. Uh, You know, it's a genetic thing. He was loud and, you know, outgoing and liked to have fun. And, uh, but he was also, you know, a Southern liberal in a small town in Virginia where I grew up, Danville, Virginia. And in, in the movie, my dad had a, a column at the weekly newspaper, and there was a Nazi, a guy with a Nazi armband outside with a sign that said, who needs Neil McMillan and the Jew press, you know, and sent him, I don't know if this is in the movie, but sent him a back to Africa ticket, like the Klan had printed up these tickets to send liberals back to Africa, so um uh, You know, I I grew up, you know, that's part of the, the one thing that bothers me a little bit about the movie is, uh, you know, it kind of makes me look like a do-gooder. It makes me look like, when in fact it's really my dad and my grandma, they're, they're they're the do-gooders. I'm just the inheritor. Okay. You called your
0: your grandma, the Eleanor Roosevelt, not just of Danville, Virginia, but of the whole South and then didn't explain that.
1: When she won, she kind of looked a little bit like Ellen. Okay. She, she dressed, she, uh, and fa- and physically she looked like her. And, and, but she was a liberal too. She had gone to college. She grew up in Brunswick County down by the beach in North Carolina. She went to college. She was a school teacher and, you know, and, and she, and so she was the same kind of liberal uh, in the thirties and forties that Eleanor was, you know, and, 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 you know, and my dad picked up on that and my uncle, right. They, uh, you know, and that's another thing. My uh, my dad, desperately, my uncle, both two of my uncles are lawyers, and my dad wanted to be a lawyer. But I was born, he had to go get a job. He had to go get a job. So their dream, my parents' dream, was for me to go to law school. And <laughs> since I was such a good bullshit artist, they thought, well, yeah, he, you know, he took monkeys out of the tree. It won't be a problem. But that wasn't my dream. But My dream was to rock and roll my dream was to somehow combine like like i said the clash and chuck berry you know that that was my dream and then and then uh and then it was made easy when my father died he died at like age 48 you know cool. when i was 20 when he died yeah, then baby. i realized oh i don't i don't have to live his dream i can i can I, you know i i can go do what i want to do oh i'm sure he'd be
0: very proud of you probably by the time you were 21 but uh in the movie, and you talked about him when we were just hanging all all those times. He was also um, worked at a radio station, and wasn't it a uh, black gospel station? Yeah. There was bet? a
1: soul station in the '60s, you know. So uh, James Brown, Sam and Dave, you know, Smokey Robinson, Miracles. That you know, was one, two, three. And he was involved in the civil rights movement uh, there in Danville, you know, which is one of the, you know it was very segregated at the time and uh and you know and the you know, there weren't many there weren't many white businessmen there they, you know it's it's a uh, you know it's a cliche but it was literally my dad and the Jewish guys who owned the haberdash you know the fancy clothes joints they were the only white liberals to you know align with the blacks other people might have had sympathy for the blacks but they were afraid to show it they wouldn't they, they were not they would never you know put their head on the chopping block what i I
0: don't recall hearing in the movie was although I should have known the presence of the actual clan in Danville, which meant you probably knew who some of the adults around town were who put the hoods on, and maybe even who in your school was sympathetic to, which would be oh, a well, really
1: really tense thing to
0: grow up in
1: well this is it's even it's even more so. Danville was the last capital of the Confederacy. You know, it's mentioned in that song, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, uh, Virgil King worked on the Danville train. So when Richmond fell, Jefferson Davis came to Danville and set up shop for like a week, uh, you know, before, and that's right at the time of Appomattox. So anyway, Danville's claim to fame, Danville's claim to fame was it was the last capital of the Confederacy. And in 1965, they, all the men grew beards and rode horses down Main Street in some attempt, you know, to say, we're going to keep the Negroes down, which is, you know, which is what all this was, what it was all about, you know, always. And the other thing that happened in Danville is, you know, it was a cotton mill town. And so every time they would try, this was in the 40s and 50s, every time they tried to unionize, they would use, they would use race to split the vote. Right. So they would, some, you know, they would literally dynamite people's houses and stuff. But they would also, you don't want to be in a, in a union with that guy. Right. That guy's right. You don't want to be in a union with a black guy. Except they didn't say black guy.
0: Right. Right. But th- there, there was even uh, an incident or probably a culmination of many incidents where there was an honest to God African-American uprising. In Danville, photographs of which are in the movie with the identical hosing of African Americans that uh went down in Selma with John Lewis and everybody, and it happened in Danville
1: too yeah, danville was Danville was known you know as one of those places that you know it wasn't safe to be a black guy right you had to you know you had to be your you had to be you know on your best manners and it was uh like I think I said in the movie. There wasn't a black guy on the city payroll in City, 1960. The one third of the city was black, not a black guy on the city payroll because those jobs are for white folks. Not even a black garbage man, not a black policeman, not a black gardener, nothing.
0: Wow. So what exactly caused the uprising in the streets? And were you there?
1: Now I was too little. This was in 63 64. Martin Luther King came to town. I just remember my dad was uh riled up. And at some point somebody put like a upside down uh Johnny house, uh you know, on our front yard. Uh I'm not exactly sure why.
0: And I don't know what you that know, is. What's a Johnny house? A,
1: a Johnny, you know, an outhouse. Okay. Somebody put a, a but it was that was some symbol, you know. Say, you know, right? My dad was thought of as a traitor to the race, right? But he thought of himself as a guy that will you know. I, and I firmly believe this. Everybody, we should bring everybody up to the good level, you know. We, uh uh we do more, we do more good by, you know, raising a bunch of boats than by raising one.
0: Right, no, fully, fully agreed on that. Leveling the playing field, raising the boats. Did your father actually meet Dr. King or see him speak?
1: Yeah, I think so because there were some pictures down in the basement at my house, and uh, we were literally getting the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was his main organization right. with Ralph Abernathy. We right. were getting their weekly or monthly newsletter at the house, so you know he was involved.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, that, that's the part a lot of people don't know about you. But somehow, um, when did you first get hooked on rock and roll?
1: Well, uh, you know, shortly, shortly thereafter. I might have bought, you know, I, I had a bunch of singles when I was a kid. I, I remember I had uh, the Beatles' Help single. Uh, I, I, lo- I loved uh, Help and I'm Down on uh, the B-side. I had singles as I was a kid. But I think thing I went really crazy when I bought that second Led Zeppelin album. So one ah, me, that was like 1970? I was right. twelve or thirteen years old. Yeah. Yeah. I,
0: I, would I was. play a whole lot of love years. just over and
1: over. Right, you know, was,
0: right, right. It was I know that secret,
1: one. Right. And it was also it wasn't it, you know, this is kind of part of the mystery of rock and roll. It was Led Zeppelin wasn't on the radio. We well, all we had was AM radio then. So right. it was like a little secret teenage, commu- you know, thing. And that's one of the things that rock and roll does. It's a secret language between the musicians and teenagers about what's, ha- what's really happened. Right. My buddy Jim Dickinson, he would go on and on about this. His, You know, he felt like he was transferring the secret history of rock and roll to people like me with hopes that I would spread it and you know because right, there's all there's always pop music there's always schlock there's always terrible stuff but there's all but some if you dig deep enough there's somebody playing the real thing there's somebody playing something that you know is exciting and meaningful and wild and crazy and free and and, and it'll move you 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 must you just might have to dig to find it. well yeah you know, yeah, you yeah i don't <laughs>
0: Oh, not at all. No, no, no. This is this is a little bit different from what you said in the movie, which is good. And a lot of people haven't seen the movie, of course. And somehow, even with Griven Horton Heat, and yourself and others, and then many, many more, including Brian Setzer, they didn't start out playing more traditional rock and roll and then making it their own. There were other things, too. And in your case, at um, you, you, one point you were in Denver and really, really into punk rock and started a band whose name I keep forgetting. I'm
1: sorry. I was Zebra 123. We were a good, we were a combination of The Clash versus Jerry Lee Lewis with Richard Pryor uh, singing. That was, that was my plan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Dwayne Davis never forgot it. One of the co-owners of Wax Tracks, he always asked me about you and stuff. And I guess there were recordings. Somebody's throwing them up on the record.
1: Is Dwayne yes, still he is. around?
0: Yeah, I would know. When I was if he there.
1: Was. I, I was there last summer, and I uh-huh. went by there, but he wasn't there. Yeah, he doesn't come in
0: that often anymore. And his partner, who is the real encyclopedia of all the old 45s and all those genres we love, um, Dave Stidman, he comes in once in a while and then his son has now moved back from the East Coast. And there's another Stidman kind of slowly taking over for Dave and stuff. I mean, Dwayne well, that, away- yeah, This is
1: I know this is one of your joys, right? That we would go, go to the record store and spend hours looking for things we didn't have, you know. With a store
0: like that, especially when I opened the Pandora's box, when I had to start buying 45s because of all the punk singles that you'd never hear any other way, and the original wax tracks probably had more of those maybe than anybody outside of Bleak or Bob or Zed on the coast or whatever, I don't know. Tons of stuff. And then there was this huge table of used old 45s. I've resisted this. I've resisted this. Oh, here we go. And within five minutes, I found not one but four singles by the Colorado Garage Kings. I used to hear on the radio who played Led Zeppelin also, and who I thought was a black soul singer at the time, just like this guy named Creedence Clearwater, another early favorite. Didn't know it was a band. But not one but four Moonrakers singles. I've got a Moonraker thing. I don't believe it. So then I started finding more stuff, no, and wait, then there was a you,
1: no you, you thought Fogarty was a black guy from Louisiana?
0: Yep. I didn't know where he was from. It was just with that voice. And, you know, it, it, it's not inconceivable for an African-American to be named Credence Clearwater. There's an <laughs> that, Eddie Clearwater. Well, you, know,
1: uh, you know, I love Fogarty, uh, even though he can be personally a pain in the ass. I love, <laughs> I love those records, and but yeah, oh, yeah, there's a lot of little Richard in his singing, and a, and there's oh, yeah. a little Howlin' Wolf in there too,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, not as much Helen Wolf as there is in Captain Beefheart, or for that matter, you at times. But oh, uh, yeah, that,
1: you know, I really can't sing, but Bell- you know, I, I I could I I could have been one of them singers before they had microphones. I, I, oh I, yeah, I could have taken Al Jolson on.
0: <laughs> there, there you go, or, or or been a later version of Emmett Miller. You Nobody, know yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, I I read the Nick Tosh's book. Now, you have you read that book? It's about
0: Miller or one of the one of his other ones.
1: No, there's one about Miller called "Where Dead Voices Gather," and it's wow. all about uh the last of the black minstrel singers and how right, that you know, right? right how, you know how how maybe rock and roll begins during the, before the Civil War with you know, white guys pretending to be black guys and black guys pretending to be white guys and you right, know it all gets mixed together. Right. You know, I was just talking about I, this on the radio today. When Chuck Berry did Maybelline and showed up to some of the early gigs, they thought they were going to see a white guy because it's kind of a country jump song. You know, yeah, same, and, and he, he, also has a, to...
0: he also doesn't have a stereotypically black singing voice either.
1: No, he doesn't. And, and it, well, the opposite's true. Jerry Lee would show up and people thought, well, he must be black. No. <laughs> he he yeah. just crazy.
0: <laughs> well, he also, of course, as you know from another Tasha's book, spent a lot of time peering through windows to the in the clubs that had what was called race music at the time, complete with chicken wire across the front of the stage because people threw bottles at the musicians and stuff, which happened to him later, too, and he was kind of used to it, I suppose. I mean, I, I was told about Emmett Miller by Glenn Howard, who you may also know, I'm not sure um, I know John Doe knows him and the Alvins know him and whatnot, but um, big record guy, 78's collector. He uh, he um, gave me a cassette of Emmett Miller and said, yeah, this is to Jimmy Rogers. What you know. Jimmy Rogers was to Hank Williams. Emmett Miller was right. to Jimmy Rogers. That was the way he presented Emmett Miller. And I think you were the one who told me that bluegrass was originally invented by African-Americans.
1: Well, there's a whole, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's all, you know, uh, lot of, lots of people were playing similar music. You know, Bill Monroe, you know, gave it the name and popularized it. But a lot of the, in the twenties, those a lot of those string bands, you know, were black bands. You know, it's all, you know, it, 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 it right. We put a lot of labels on things, but to me, I, I like the Duke Ellington quote. I like there's two kinds of music. Good music and bad. I like good music. <laughs> and, and the other and the quote I always you know, when, you know when you're recording the microphone doesn't know what color you are. The tape doesn't know what color you are. Right. Exactly. What matters is right, can you make people can you make people bug dance? Can you make people feel something in their soul? Yeah, you know, that, 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 right, that's, that's
0: hilarious. You'd bring that up because we were trying. I think it was. Uh... Will the fetus be aborted? Our cover of Daryl Cherney and Judy Barry's yes. parody of "and oh so appropriate." Now there's a video out now that Annie, the co-producer of this show, made. I think I think I sent that to you of "Will the fetus be aborted?" Because of the Supreme Court situation, but the tempo wasn't quite. Feeling right, and we all knew it. Well, let's just try it again. He said, wait a minute, wait, you just can't buck dance to it. You got up off the chair where you were all mic'd up with your guitar and began buck dancing around the room until, yeah, this is it, this is it, and plopped back into the chair. And Wid, otherwise known, yeah, known as uh God, how can I space on Wid's name? That shows uh,
1: my well, that's shows how I mean, you're not as old as me. But you're getting old.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, anyway, brother. apologies. Like, but but then he he locked in with the buck dance beat, and that was the take we used. We didn't record another one after that.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that that uh, yeah that that that's you know very extremely appropriate now with uh, the whole situation. You know, with the uh, Supreme Court. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: That was thirty years ago, and. You would think all these. You would think all these problems from the you know fifties or sixties or you know eighties or nineties would be solved. Nothing solved. You know, in, oh, in fact, I know. Donald, I mean... Donald Trump made it worse. Right, Donald Trump being president meant that uh, people could people could tap into their inner jerk. And what whatever hate filled psycho feeling yeah. of you Come know the black had a
0: complete asshole in every possible way, and then it's okay. Ah. but well, I I think going going back to you know, the heartbreak looking back on how we both felt things were really going and how exciting it was to be as aware as we were. And a lot of other people our age were not. They have no tangible personal memories of Vietnam, civil rights, or even Watergate when we were in high school. And Senator Sam and those hearings were the best reality show in the history of television. And Nixon went down. Justice actually worked, at least before General Ford But, but, But um, I think... By the by the mid to late 70s, when I was about to get out of high school, and a lot of things suddenly just changed in a year or two, all of a sudden, instead of being practically defunct, the frats and the sororities were back at the university of Colorado. And suddenly ROTC was back. And suddenly where people were getting really, really square and the music that most people knew about listed was getting really, really sucky and everything. And then journey instead of like
1: right. li- the band I hate the most journey. I fucking hate journey.
0: <laughs> but I, I, at the time I liked their first two or three, because they were more of a
1: prog rock band and there was right, right, no right. Steve Jerry. Yeah. I saw that. Right. That, when they did uh, the they did a cover of the Beatles song, uh, it's all too much. I saw that, but yeah, when they when they yeah. got the pop singer, uh, you know that that's the devil. That, um, I mean, you know, i, Reagan, I had already Reagan. long
0: long unplugged from there because you know the main thing that kept me from being a seriously suicidal teenager who couldn't even kill himself right, finding out the hard way was when punk hit and suddenly the spirit of rock and roll was back. The music was as wild as the MC5 and the Stooges. And the lyrics were all sick humor and negative and angry as never before. And I think punk and then all the things that spawned with post-punk and the revival of true roots of rock and roll and all that stuff all those years that we all loved, and you you, know, you wouldn't be Mojo Nixon without The Clash either. You know, all these things we went through, that was the only stuff that made the 80s bearable. I mean, the sensational 60s, then the sober 70s, when suddenly the way to be naughty was to drink a bunch of cans of beer in the park with the jocks instead of, you know, that's rebellion, please get away from me. And then, but the 80s, My old friend John Greenway from Colorado said, yeah, well, now what we're living in, it's not the sober 70s, it's the evil 80s. And Reagan, again, you know, greed is good. It's okay to be a crook again. And Nixon was fine and all that good stuff. And slowly a whole army of Nixons in both parties takes over all the echelons of government. But what made it bearable and what made it good and did so much to the magic, it was the music. Very much, including you. Know,
1: you. One it, the, it, uh, you're reminding me of one of my songs. Uh, I ain't gonna piss in no jar. Uh, oh I yeah. ain't gonna pee pee in no cup unless Nancy Reagan's gonna drink it up. And I think I they uh, that line. Oh uh, yeah, that's the first line. That's the first line. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and but the um, I ain't gonna pee pee in no cup unless Nancy Reagan. And I think they re-put out broadside magazine. And uh, like, like Bob Dylan, I was in Broadside Magazine at some, you know, reissue point in the 80s. I was very happy.
0: Yeah, I don't know what Broadside Magazine was.
1: Well, Broadside, so there was, uh, there was Sing Out Magazine. Right. Th- these are folk. This is New York folk stuff. Right,
0: right. And then right.
1: Broadside was more political songs. And in fact, Dylan did a song for a Broadside album under the name Blind Boy Grunt. Not that I'm oh, fixated yeah. on Bob Dylan. Not that I, that's all I ever think about or anything. <laughs> you know, but somehow I, I didn't also- just get the new Grail Marcus book about Bob Dylan. But anyway, yeah, Broadside magazine was a, uh, a broadside as in a political broadside. So right. like, so right. Bob Dylan's third album, the times they are changing, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that's also, you know, Phil Oaks, the guy we covered on the thing, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah and we kind of made Phil over we, Well, we also made Phil sound like he was at Motown. You know that that made me feel good too. You know?
0: Yeah, you and Wet Dog are the ones who pulled that off. I didn't have any any strong ideas on what to do with the music to make it different at all. And then that happens, like, oh yeah, this is the kind of FM stuff that the love me, I'm a liberal types who think Bill and Hillary Clinton are awesome to this day. This is about them now, and I hardly had to change any of Phil Oakes' words. I mean, clearly, musically different, but punk spirit goes back way before the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, or even Iggy Pop. And Phil Oaks was punk spirit to the nines. Definitely. You, know, uh,
1: definitely. you, you talked about uh, when punk came around, and I was talking about my mom, you know, and one of the one of the things punk was saying was we don't care. We don't care about your, all, all that shit you care about. We don't, right. Cause I always felt like there's, you know, you're selling two things. One of them is we don't care as you can hear in the second. And then all the other thing is, fuck you, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. You fucking fucks, you know? And, uh, and then there, I guess the other side of that is, you know, uh, is, is you know, we, you know, we 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 don't want to admit it, but we do actually care about some stuff and we want to be well, very much united so. and we want to kick some ass.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, uh, you know, even though they bought way too much of the rock and roll hero thing for my taste, it was obvious that people in the clash gave a shit and the Sex Pistols gave a shit. And in their own way, I mean, Johnny Ramone denied to me in a letter that the Ramones were a political band but certainly the kind of stuff they were singing about, nobody else was singing about trying to turn a trick right. at 53rd third and 3rd third, or right, any right, of that. Right. And it was- it was yeah, it Sometimes was it's
1: political without being overtly political. The right. fact that they it's made topical. those albums, right? The fact that they made those albums was fucking subversive, right? You oh, know, yeah. It, oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So somehow we rewind back to Danville, Virginia, which is right above the North Carolina border, isn't it? Real close? It's
1: right on the North Carolina border. It's below Roanoke and Lynchburg in Virginia. It's above Chapel Hill and Greensboro in uh North Carolina.
0: Right. Okay. Well um,
1: you're you get high directions, huh? I you mean have Mojo gone too long?
0: Well, no, no, not at all. Um It's going to be fun for the audio podcast folks to figure out where to put the 30-minute commercial. Yes, there's commercials in mine, too, to get it out on all them big old platforms, even in Timbuktu, instead of just on the Alternative Tentacles site. They did make me, ACAS allow me to fill out a commercial block form of what I really didn't want on there. For a while, I was going to block everything except funeral homes. But uh, there's a few other things in there, and people can can contact us and put stuff on there too to try and make the ads more more relevant this that and the other. But um, back to Danville, at some point, you know you're exposed to all this civil rights consciousness and there's all this you know you feel it when you're walking around not just on the streets of what's going on in Danville, but of course you and I both were aware enough we experienced the situations and the music together as one and it enhanced our knowledge and ability to feel both of course so at some point it goes to a later uh picture of you in the movie and suddenly you've got long hair were you the first one in danville to grow your hair out and the the bullies no, I wasn't the
1: first, but uh the, the the 60s were a little slow coming to danville right you know, and uh yeah. I came home from college. I went to college in Ohio. I came home from college and my mother in thought Ohio. I looked like what uh, Miami of Ohio and Oxford, oh, okay. Ohio, which was right. about, I guess the reason I went there, it was the furthest away place. My parents would pay for maybe, uh, you know, right. I think it, was, it was like a 13 hour drive. There's a little chance of going to be a pop in. And, um, anyway, I went there and I didn't know nobody. And I was the only punk rocker there. I was an army of one. And, um, but I came back, and I had really long, crazy hair and a beard. And my mother said I looked like, uh, the, I looked like the man who killed Miss Shepard. So, you know, the fugitive story is based on an actual Dr. Shepard who uh, supposedly killed oh, his Sam wife. And he said there was, he, he claimed, I don't know if you know this, but he claimed there was a bushy-headed man on the beach that, that killed his wife and beat him up. Right. And she thought yeah. I looked like the, the mystical bushy-headed man. There was one of
0: those in in Boulder where I grew up who finally got released about 25 years later named Joe Sam Walker and in his case it was a stocky blonde they never found.
1: Uh, uh, but yes, uh, it's kind of, you know, it scared my uh it's uh, scared my parents to death. And I was all I was already I had a band called I had a band called Godzilla's Revenge and then <laughs> I had a band called Martial Law. And I in Martial Law was all like 70s you know, Radio Rock covers Stones, right. Right. Uh, Skinner, yeah. you know, Bad Company, that kind of thing. But uh, I made them learn blick, scree, bop, and they didn't want to. They didn't uh. want to. But, yeah, when you get that drum going and everybody starts going, hey, oh, let's go, you know, it's infectious. You can't, you can't stop it.
0: Just ask any gazillion-dollar sports team you care to name these days. You know, to have that people chanting that in the in the in the stadium, I mean, it's mainly football, isn't it? For heyo, let's go!
1: Yeah, a day. lot of times you know uh, they'll play it during the during the kickoffs there,
0: right? So, uh, right. Or or when somebody's starting off, whatever. Anyway, um, it's the other thing that I think is very key. You haven't hit on that you hit on strongly in the movie is if those of us who know you well or have seen you enough on stage didn't spot it about ten seconds. You were exposed you, you you were raised in the church and exposed to fires and brimstone preachers either in your church, family's church, or around town.
1: Well, I mean, you know, uh the church I went to was pretty, you know, was the meth the high Methodist. It was pretty safe. Pretty you know. Right. But uh, but my dad, you know, worked at the Black Radio Station and they had churches, they had preachers live at the radio station and on Sunday from there. I remember you. I went to go set up the microphones once when I was in high school and I, I was going they got a drum set, a bass player, uh, they got nine tambourines and they got, you know, a guitar player, a, an organ and a piano. You know, they, you know, the church had a rocking setup and I always hey. loved And you would see him on TV all the time. I remember there was a guy, some crazy preacher, had a show on the TV channel out of Greensboro. And he was all over the Beatles. He knew that Paul was dead and the Beatles were the devil. And, you know, this was in 66, I mean, 67 or 68. You remember his name. Was he white or black? He He was white. I can't remember his name, but... I would have never heard, you know, I was like 10. I was 10 years old. I would have never heard any of this except he's telling it to me. He's telling me how Paul's really dead, he's overdosed on drugs.
0: I may already have a record by him in my crazy preacher department. I don't know. Is it Jack Jack Van Impey? Is it Mark Rude? And years before he haunted us all, and he was already extreme fundamentalist and had that operatic let the eagle soar voice John Ashcroft.
1: Put out an album. Oh yeah, that guy.
0: Yeah, oh, that yeah. guy.
1: Yeah. and on on one of my songs, I'm going to dig up How and Wolf. I mentioned Dr. Gene Scott. I don't know if you oh, remember yeah. him. Oh, very yeah. well. Yeah, was, very he was, well. He was completely nuts. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then there was that guy in uh, there was a guy in Dallas who I think maybe those uh, sub genius people put farts to. You know, you know the, that tape. Oh, I'm yeah, Robert about? Tilton.
0: Robert Tilton. Robert
1: Tilton is a he would do this thing, and then Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But I think it might have been those sub genius guys, Reverend Stang, uh, you know, down there in Dallas, who put farts to it. Oh, that was a good tape to have. You know, that, it's crazy. yeah, I, I got that off just, Al
0: Jorgensen at one point. That tape, yeah. Well,
1: and, you know, uh, you now you go to the internet, you can find anything. Back then, you had to like. You had to talk to people. You had to go places. You had to. You had to stay at the party till four a.m. to get to see the farting tape. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I have video stuff I've never seen on the internet. That if you're ever at my house again, then uh, you have to see this one.
1: What? What? The lightning Hopkins teeth flying out? Have you seen that one? No. Uh, I think. Uh, Who's that guy that played uh, – um, Dave Alvin got it from um, Al Cooper, uh, okay. I, I think. Okay. But uh, anyway, Lightning Hopkins is doing like German TV. He's playing the song, and he's sitting down, and he's like, you know, stomping, and at the end of the song, he goes, Phew! you know, like that, and his false <laughs> teeth fly out and shoot across <laughs> the room. And then the guy comes on and goes, Let's see that again in slow motion, because you can't really see it at first. Wow.
0: So, of course, uh, people with fond memories of the heyday of you and Skid Roper and the Toad Lickers, obviously, you're very high energy, very physically fit. How early... Were you that fit? I mean, when did the long-distance bicycle trips
1: begin? When I was, I was a bicycle racer when I was in high school, and then wow. uh, I think, and then early, let's see, in '82 is when I rode the bicycle across the country, and uh, and part of it was, and that, I think I stole a lot of this from Bruce and from uh, uh, you know George Thurgood. I'm not that good a singer or player, but I'm a, you know, I thought of it like a football game. You know, I was gonna, you know. And, and this for I got old and fat and, you know, and fucked up and drugs, booze and everything. But yes, so I would, uh, I would compensate for my, it, my lack of musical ability by, one, making it like a physically uh, exhilarating and exhausting thing. And the other thing, my real talent's into bullshit. You know, the stuff, it turned out like when, you know, when Skid wasn't, when Skid wasn't around or when Wet Dog wasn't in the band for a while, People didn't get upset. People came to hear the shit I said between the songs. And you know, they came And to the every- less often
0: the less often you gigged, the more the fire and brimstone Jimmy swaggered with the guitar got more intense, more insane, and of course, more dead on in the thought department. But the story I want to get to, the long distance bike ride across the country was how and where and everything that led to the birth of Mojo Nixon.
1: So uh, let's see. This is 1982. Uh, I'm in. I'm in since. I mean, I'm in San Diego. I've met Country Dick. He's thinking about forming the Beet Farmers, but he hasn't yet. He's got Country Dick and the Snuggle Bunnies, and I'm kind of at a loss. And, and it, uh, you know, I don't know what to do. And I had always wanted to do this to ride, go on an adventure, ride a bicycle across the country. My uh, childhood friend from uh, Danville, Bobby Parker. He said he'd do it. He was a park ranger somewhere, and we uh, we started in San Diego, rode bicycles all the way to Danville, Virginia, hit the ocean at excuse me at Savannah, and uh, we slept outside or asked for people. You know, we didn't we didn't pay for a motel once. People let us stay in their houses or in their backyards or in the park. You know, a lot of times you'd see like the roadside table, picnic table. We'd go there, set up. A cop would come by. He'd be ready to roust us, but then once he realized we were on an adventure and we were leaving the next day, he okay, all right, y'all can go, y'all can stay. So oh. yeah, it was and it was on that trip that I kind of had the mojo Nixon revelation that I should, you know, stop trying to be Bruce Springsteen and do what I do best, which is sit down, get a front porch boogie-woogie going, and then start talking shit over top of it. All right. That's Ooh. the other thing. Well, p- part of it also, what you told
0: me f- when you first told me this story and uh, when we were making our record, was it wasn't just any place you had this epiphany. It wasn't sleeping under the stars. Under the stars. You were drinking in bars at night while riding these long-distance bikes and somehow <laughs> having the constitution to be a- and metabolism to well, we do were, that. And well, it was in a we, bar uh, in New Orleans that Mojo was... Yes, we had was- a
1: friend in New Orleans. I, I had a friend who was a bartender there. And he took us on like a tour of all the bars, and we were drinking something called Skylab Fallout. So this is when oh Skylab God. was falling back to the earth, and okay. uh, and you know, and I was just drunk out of my mind. Uh, I remember the next day. I think we only drove, we only rode to you know, Bil- Biloxi or somewhere, and I, I was a little hung over, a, a little bit.
0: <laughs> but you, so you weren't drinking every night when you when you put. No, I was drinking every
1: night. But so, uh, but yeah, this. Uh, this friend of mine from college, he, he got a job in the bars, and he goes, I'm going to take y'all. to you know." So he's a bartender. And he knew all the other bartenders. He took us to like 20 different bars. We, right. But uh, Bobby got so drunk, he swallowed both of his contact lenses. Right. He, oh, my God. He, he, <laughs> How can you swallow your
0: contact lenses? You sneeze them out to, like light and hot. to save
1: them. He was trying to save him in his mouth or something. He was trying to put him in a glass of water, and he ended up swallowing him.
0: Right. And, well, uh, the, the moral of the story there is always carry chapstick with you. You can always <laughs> get the chapstick out later, even if it's gas permeable lenses. And well, this is um, this is I, your
1: this is what you've done. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, during, right, during the if you're doing the walk of shame at seven a.m and the church bells are ringing, you can find your contacts in the chapstick.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't put them straight in, though, or my eyes would just hurt like hell from all the debris and scum in there. And um, you've got glasses on now. Were you wearing contacts back
1: when you were in your 20s? I wasn't. I didn't have, you know. Here's the thing. You know who thought I'd be dead by now? The long-suffering bride of Mojo they You know, I promised her I'd be dead by forty. I remember I uh, I had to I had this whole thing. No oldest male child in my family had ever lived to be fifty. You know, I didn't think I was going to outlive Elvis. Uh, this is all just kind of I've been. And if you saw me it, whenever I was at my worst, you would have said he got like two weeks. He's got two two weeks, and then he'll be dead. Uh, and I I wonder you know you know why I'm not dead. And I remember I asked, you know, I I think I asked, you know, John Doe. John, how come we're alive and, you know, other folks? John Doe said we we were smart enough to know when to say no. But Dave Alvin said, no, we were just lucky to have the good gene, the you know, the hard-to-kill gene, right, you know. And and I think that is a lot of, right, so you're right.
0: I I think there there may be both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Keith Richards, Jerry Lee, and Al Jorgensen, every day they wake up in the morning. They're defying science. And I suspect they all know it. I mean, Al does for sure. Okay, so Mojo Nixon, the concept is hatched. What made you move to San Diego in the first place? Why San Diego?
1: Oh, I had a girlfriend from college. Uh, she was okay. out there, but she's the one. She was going to law school out there, and she's the one who told me I needed to, you know, go, I needed to go to law school so I'd have something to fall back on because this music thing was never going to work. So I wrote a song about her on my second album. You're going to eat them words. You
0: know. Oh, but then, so it was a few albums later when you opened, didn't you open an entire album with Destroy
1: All Lawyers? Oh, yeah. So, I, right, they, they you know, you know that like I said, that was my parents' dream that I should go to law school and everything. And, right. And once I realized, because by the time I was halfway through college, I, I was done with it. I was sick of it. I hated it. I hated it. I hated everybody there. I wanted to kill everybody and everything. I don't know. I was some kind of, you know, Billy Midwest punk rocker. And, um, but I, you know, they spent all this money. Okay, I'll graduate. But then, but then when I graduated, I moved to England and I lived in a squat in Brixton. And my goal was to join the Clash. I I met Strummer later through the Pogues and he said they were all full. They didn't need me. They didn't need me at all. <laughs> Yeah,
0: weirdly when I didn't want to cut my hippie hair off yet after my fear and loathing backpack trip to London in seven seventy seven, I saw the Saints, among others, and what, and I still didn't want to cut out. I thought, oh, wow, I listened to the first Motorhead 12-inch called Motorhead. And I was like, God, maybe they need a singer, man. That guy can't sing to save his life.
1: <laughs> that guy's got kind of gravelly, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it, his thing developed a little more after that, but, and I, of course, I didn't get it at that point either because Venom had not completely changed metal by becoming the flipper of heavy metal, where all of a sudden the recording was terrible. They could barely play. The guy couldn't sing to save his life instead of the falsetto Judas Priesty stuff. And all their songs were out Satan and Angel Dust. What more could you need? I mean, I hadn't, I'd ignored metal except for Motorhead for years, and then Venom hit it was like, oh my God. God, who is this? And of course, a lot of the classic metal people and and the best, they just hated them instantly. Especially after they got a cult and got popular. And then another band comes out of Southern California called Slayer, who leapfrogs them almost overnight. And you know, it has you know mu- you know the musicianship, the production, everything is on a whole other level, and plenty of Satan too. <laughs>
1: You can't go you can't go wrong with the, beelzebub Beelzebub. is a good move.
0: I even have a I even have a barbershop or a glee club album. I found a thrift store and the name of the group is the Beelzebubs. But I haven't had the I, the song titles do not indicate there. that they're singing okay, let, let me, Satan. Yeah, I'm gonna
1: interview you. How many albums do you have?
0: I stopped counting probably in ninth grade, tenth grade. It wasn't quantity. It was quality. It was the music. Every damn one of them I bring home, I get them because I want to listen to them. Then when I'm home, i got to get back to
1: work. So how many, uh, is there a warehouse? Is there walls of albums? Or is there a basement room? You've
0: been there. You've Mm -hmm. been there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the living room is... Are there more singles than there are uh, albums?
0: Quite possibly. I've never checked. <laughs> I'd have to pay somebody to work work at a decent wage for a month just to count them all, let alone catalog yes. them all. I'm a librarian's kid. I even have, have all ever, the demo we got.
1: Have you ever gone in a record store and walked out with nothing when you had money in your pocket?
0: Yeah, I have. Especially if it's the hipster what? store in a town. I'm told to go to, and there isn't anything that interesting. They have every Indian punk label in the book except Alternative Tentacles. And I'm like, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> no support from you, no support from me. No, 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 no. But it, it wow. is rare, and there is a bad habit sometimes of getting something in a thrift store just because I didn't want to go out empty-handed. And then, what did I buy this Mormon campfire songs record for? <laughs> and wow, things that's... like that.
1: Well, you know, because uh, I, I I saw you in the uh, in, in the corporate play. What was that uh, documentary about the uh, corporate Broadway plays? And they made albums oh, yeah. of them. And apparently, only that was only, half, that was half only half people like Broadway. you have these albums. Yes.
0: Yeah, I have very few. And in the spirit of corporate music like that, we are now at our one hour mark. So uh, and now a word from our trendy, loving sponsors who would even want to be associated with me. And I don't know who they are, so I'm not sure I want to be associated with them. And now we're back. Yeah, that movie is called Bathtubs Over, Over Broadway. And ironically, the people who made it call the those records and that whole genre... Um, industrial music, but we aren't talking about Nine Inch Nails or Ministry hey. or Revco or whatever. We're talking about corporate sales conventions, souvenir albums, where executives or a little bit low salesmen would have a little executives and obviously romp without the wives there. And they would hire a composer and a performance troupe to perform a one time only musical. Full length about how great the corporation is, I and think we need a to friend th- of mine th-
1: increased th- the taxes on the corporations.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and and some of these is Steve Young, who made the movie, who was the main scholar of this, and turned me on to it, and even gave me an extra copy of the American Standard Toilet Company Convention one, which has my bathroom. My bathroom is a special kind of place. Oh yeah, the 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 level of dementia is like nothing you have ever experienced. I'm really glad you saw that movie too, because there was one example where the the original Fiddler on the Roof staged in the 50s, $400,000 to launch it on Broadway. Same year, a musical for con- some kind of a convention about General Motors, $1.5 million. And name actors came through on this. But you, the Steve, what Steve said to me in a letter was his favorite ones were the ones that clearly were not meant to be heard outside the company. Like a live a Coca-Cola one and live in San Francisco in the big bottling plant in the sky where there's no EPA and there's no OHSA and everyone has to drink Coke all day. And I thought, wow. If they're that upset about the EPA who didn't exist that much earlier, what are they putting in Coke that would upset the EPA that much? So yeah, it, it's a it's a and, the, and now there's a there's a soundtrack album to it too, with a whole bunch of the most demanded ones on there. So bathtubs over Broadway people and back to back to mojo, okay, now we have we haven't gotten to actually going live with skid roper yet the the early launch of mojo nixon
1: i played about five maybe ten shows by myself i think the first mojo show was coming up in the spring was 40 years ago at the texas tea house in ocean beach in san diego and uh my buddy mitch cornish uh he used to play there and some other bands used to play there. there's a little bitty place And I played there just by myself, sitting down with the guitar, calling myself Mojo Nixon. though everybody thinks, you know, knows me as Kirby at the time. And, uh, and I don't have that many, many songs and I'm not that good, but I am extremely, you know, I'm extremely excited to do it. And, and (laughs) there was a club in San Diego called the spirit where, uh, you know, most of the alt bands played and, uh, me and Skid would hang out there all the time. And I originally wanted him to play like one of those cocktail drums or just a snare. Uh, but he goes, no, in the snuggle bunnies have this washboard on a stick. And, uh, and then we, I think we rehearsed two or three times and then we started playing country dick and the snuggle bunnies, uh, the band before the beat farmers that both that Joey Harris was in, and Nino was in, they, uh, they used to play Spring Valley Inn every uh, every Sunday night, and then me and Skid, when they would take a break, would get up and play, whether whether they we, we were allowed to or not. Those guys were so drunk and so high they, they couldn't say no. And and then me and Skid were in a bunch of other bands at the same. You know, I was in like four bands, uh, but eventually they all fell away, and uh, you know, I made a. Uh, I made a demo at Joey Harris's house. Joey Harris is later in the Beat Farmers. Joey's uncle, uh, Nick Reynolds, is in the Kingston Trio. We, uh, we, played, we did a uh, demo in Joey's house. Jo- me and Skid and Joey and Paul Komansky. Paul Komansky is the one who wrote all the best songs in the Beat Farmers. He's Joey's running mate from Coronado. And uh, we made the demo. And eventually the guy from the record company, the guy, Ron Gowdy, gets hold of him. He goes, oh, we're putting this out. I go, no, no, those are just demos. He goes, no, nah, no, nah. you can make a better album next time. I'm putting this out. You can't, there's no way you, there's no way you can sound this primitive again. And like on that first album, people would say, man, it sounded like, you know, like primitive musicians. Like, you know, how did you play? how did you, essentially they're saying, how did you play so shittily, you know, like a skiffle band? And I was like, that was as good as I could play. That was the top end of my ability.
0: And this was long before do-rag and then the whole gut-bucket blues lo-fi right. thing by maybe 15 or 20 years.
1: You know, uh, what is cra- Eugene Chadbourne was doing a crazy thing. Oh, yeah. And, right, there were other, other nuts, uh, you know, free spirits doing things. And I didn't As really know what sense. I was doing. Right. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just, uh, uh, you know, I knew I had to do it. I, I I, knew way down inside, I knew I was not going to be good in the cubicle. I was not going to be good <laughs> in the office. Right, you know. Right,
0: uh, right. So, so basically, that makes me wonder if your friend's uh, father was it, who was in the Kingston Trio and knew Ron Gowdy w- uh, from Enigma, Would that? W- I would love to see if he first brought you in there and said, I found the new Kingston Trio. Sit down and listen, Uh, uh, and then watch the look on the person's face.
1: No, because originally, because Enigma was, was on Enigma Records, was part of uh, was it Green World and they had like a metal label up in, in- yeah they, they,
0: yeah they broke off of Green World the hind brothers pulled out of Green World and then started Enigma independently of that. But there think. was a
1: guy there was an, another like a metal label and this guy he was managing Tex in the Horseheads and I gave him a cassette and he goes this isn't for me but he gave it to Ron and I can't remember his name oh okay. But not Brian. Slate. Yeah, because right, because sure. also right in San Diego and L.A. Oh, it was the whole Steve Sinclair. Acting. It was Steve Sinclair. Yeah, it was Steve, Steve Sinclair. Sinclair. That's who it was. Yeah, and uh, right. and but the the metal thing is happening simultaneously. You know the hair metal. You right. know, the, there's the devil metal, and there's also the hair metal, and that's all happening simultaneously in some of the same clubs. You know, in L.A. And I'm sure you know up in San Francisco too.
0: Now, I'm pretty sure Metal Blade was ma- manufactured, distributed by Enigma originally.
1: Yeah, that was Metal Blade. That's the one I'm thinking sure. of. Right. Yeah. And Ron, yeah. he also he signed uh, Poison and he signed Striper, the Christian metal band that wore the right. bumblebee right. suits. But he also <laughs> he signed the Dead Milkman. So I mean, you know, and he produced the you know first Dead Milkman couple records, and he produced first three records of mine, and he produced Elvis is everywhere. You know, which is. Uh, ah. There, there might be eight guitar. I, you know, I'm playing every guitar part known to me. Every, everything I know how to play is on that one song.
0: And somehow, in spite of stuffing Martha's muffin, you became an MTV darling, and even, a, even an on-air personality.
1: Yeah, that had to do with this. Uh, you know, they MTV wanted to be appear to be hip. It was this director guy Mark Pellington? He was the one, and then who um, was the guy? Uh, uh, brain's going dead. Uh, uh, Jonathan Demme's uh, uh, nephew, uh, Ted Demme. They okay, like you know, they were up and coming filmmakers, and they got a job from MTV to do promos, and you know, they picked me because they had already done like you know, Randy of the Redwoods and other kind of slightly oddball things, and uh, I made all these demands. I won't I, I won't do it, you know, thinking they would, you know, cave. They gave in. <laughs> when, when the devil wants you, he wants you bad. Right? I made all these demands that I wouldn't, all these things I wouldn't do, and they had to do, and they agreed to all of them in five minutes. I'm like, fuck. Wow. I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and and were, you, were you a married man by then?
1: No, but uh, we were—I'm sure we were living together. We got married uh, a couple of years later. A couple of years later, we got married at the go kart track in San Diego, and Country Dick uh, performed a wedding ceremony. And we had the 21 uh, three man water balloon slingshot salute, and we also took the victory lap that most go kart wedding couples take. My buddy Joe Longa, uh, you know, was had the Hammond B3. He played all the you know, hits. He played Green Onions. He played Double Shot of My Baby's Love. He played all the hits on the B3, including the wedding song. Yeah.
0: Did he play Sweet Soul Music by Arthur Conley? You told Sam the uh, movie that was a gateway drug into all this cool music that made you what
1: you are today. Yeah, no. when I hear that song still, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but in the middle of the song, you can hear Otis talking Otis Redding's producing Arthur Conley and Muscle Shoals. Right. And if you listen, during the middle eight, during the bridge, uh, uh, Arthur says something like, hey, Otis, how am I doing? Off the mic, but you can hear it. And Otis, like on the talkback goes, yeah, man, it sounds great. <laughs> I'll have
0: to listen for that next time. Yeah, so that's, that's,
1: that's- it's kind of like, you know, at the end of uh, Fingertips Part 2, there's a guy yelling, What key? Have you ever Stevie heard that? Wonder. The no. Stevie Wonder harmonica song. Yeah, so it, the, the, he like comes it back. I don't know about the, 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 the sounding. The song ends. The, he's playing, he's, he comes back, and they got like the Motown orchestra on stage. Stevie, it, one, Stevie's blind, and he's got like three harmonicas, so they don't know what key he's in. And, and you can hear one guy going, What key? What key? What key? He doesn't say one well, key motherfucker, but that's that's what it sounds like he's about to
0: say. Uh, 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 uh. You wow.
1: know, I am full of odd bullshit.
0: <laughs> oh, I know. That's why you're on Renegade Roundtable. You know, we, we 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 could listen to all this all day after all, since it's a streaming thing, you can always halt and then get back to it later. Or the traffic jam you're in every day trying to get home from work in L.A. because they destroyed the mass transit system decades ago, the L.A. Inter- interurban rail, you could listen to the whole thing and the traffic jam and the pain is, not, is lessened for the day. Hopefully. Although the one thing I really miss about those traffic jams on the 405 going north, actually, you remember this sign, too. You have to remember this sign. It shows the sky at the wheels and it's pink and neon blue, and it says, diarrhea. The last mile is the longest. Pepto-bismol. You know what sign I'm talking about, right? And I can't believe Ed Culver never took a picture of it. Go ahead. That
1: sounds like my life uh, on tour. We we got to <laughs> stop. We got to stop now. Right now.
0: Right, right, right. So, um, but so then we have Toad Liquors, and we have eventually, um, uh, eventually. Um, did you decide you wanted to get off the road, more time with family, whatever? Because you're a grandpa now, even Grandpa Mojo, and uh, you'd make a great Santa Claus too. And if you haven't done that yet, but uh, you'd be a great Santa Claus. But anyway, um, but did you get the serious? Well, you you were you got you were you were a seriously skilled broadcast. Personality AM radio even before Sirius even existed. How did that get going?
1: You know, at some point, uh, you know, I, I realized if I stayed on the road, uh, if I stayed on the road and did it the way I usually did it, I would be dead. So I decided, and I'd made ten albums. Isn't that enough? And and uh, you know, it's one thing. One thing. Bullet had always says, if Country Dick was alive, a Mojo would be dead because you know I would have tried to help. You know, do Country Dick. And um I got a job uh I got a, I got a job on the radio here in Cincinnati, uh, you know, doing radio because in San Diego nobody would hire me because they all believed the myth of mojo. They thought I lived in a van down by the river, you know, lived on crank and mad dog twenty twenty. A little truth <laughs> to that, but you know, anyway, so I got a job on the radio here, and then I've now been working at Sirius XM for 20 years. You would think I'd have been fired. You'd have to think I'd have said something at some point and it got me fired. You know, Uh, every time I'd play George Jones, I'd say, George Jones sings so good. Make your dick hard. Joe Dixon. Hello, country. So uh, I've been doing Outlaw Country uh, for 18 years now. I just signed a deal to do two more years. And it's Channel 60. I'm on in the afternoons. Uh, What is that? Let's see. It's uh, four to eight east, uh, one to five west. It's hillbilly rock and roll. It's country rock. Whatever you you know, it's got a million. It's got a million different names. Is it weekly? But, uh, Is know, weekly rock- daily? Daily? Weekly? Every, daily? Weekdays. You yeah, know, weekdays. And then on Monday night, I have a NASCAR show uh, called More, uh, Wait a minute, More Destiny. I got a Ma- NASCAR show called Manifold Destiny because I am a hillbilly from Danville, Virginia. Yeah, I'm glad NASCAR. you
0: said it twice because you said that so loud and leaned so far into your microphone, whatever kind it is, it completely put you underwater.
1: <laughs> the, uh, but Manifold Destiny is on, and I used to have the talk show, Lion Cocksuckers, that I had you on a couple of times. Uh, you know, and I and like it, you know, but I'm it, it, I mean, being paid not to do that. But, I, you know, I have to say... Right. I was uh, listening to some uh, tapes. I was driving back from North Carolina here recently, and I stole a whole lot of my you know, stuff from Richard Pryor and Bill Hicks. You take the best of Richard Pryor and the best of Bill Hicks, and you and you, get, you get a little jump. And, um, oh, oh, and you mentioned the movie. The movie will be coming out next year in 2023, hopefully uh, in the first quarter, and you'll be able to stream it. You'll either be able to see it on On Demand or on Amazon or Netflix or something. And here's the crazy thing about the movie. It doesn't suck. It, it, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking that the movie No, does. it certainly you know, does. I think if you're a Mojo fan, you'll like the movie. It's called The Mojo Man Oh, Festival. yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. So now um, you live in Ohio, which is a pretty gnarly state when it comes to uh, – the real vote fraud, you know, depriving more and more people of voting, and you come from another one in North Carolina and you're very familiar with that. How do we make sure somebody like JD Vance is not a senator in two or three weeks, for example? Yeah,
1: you know, I I told my wife we got to go we're going on this cruise on this outlaw west cruise. We got to go vote before before we leave. And she was like, well, why do I have to vote for him? I said, well, if you want your granddaughter to uh, be able to have an abortion, you got to vote. You got to vote for Tim Ryan. You know, and J.D. Vance, man, he's, you know, I'm here in Ohio and he, he is so pitiful. He is such a bad candidate that he has to have his wife do his commercials. You know, he's got, he's, he's got a, he's got a wife. I think she's originally, her parents are from India or somewhere. And uh, she's young and good looking. And, uh, but he is such a jerk that he can't even, right. He's so unlikable that he has to have his wife do his commercials. You know, and Tim Ryan, the guy that's running against him, has to, you know, he's banking to the middle. He's going to the middle because he's going to need independents and Republicans to vote for him you know Republicans in Ohio probably have an advantage of at least
0: 5%. Well and plus all the uh, gerrymandering and the tossing out of people's ballots cuz they have a oh, last yeah, no, name like a, Washington.
1: Yeah, Ohio, no, they, it, Ohio is
0: one of the worst and of course this Ohio is the state where Dubius stole his second election. In 2004. I'm not sure you were there then, or you were because you, you were back in San Diego for a while when you were still. And I think I had gone back. Drive drive. Right,
1: that's right. When I went back to San Diego, uh, yeah, I, was work, yeah. I was working working for Clear Channel on the classic rock station, playing Sticks and Journey. Small pieces of my soul were being chipped away each day. I'm lucky and found this job. It's a uh, serious where I say what I want and play what I want. Now I I I got a I made a list of things we should change. You want to hear my list? These are things that absolutely changes that'll make things better. Absolutely, First off, that, we're getting ready. That, the ele- that, we're getting College. Here's the, the new electoral. Mojo
0: Manifesto. Yes, the, the, the I assume the it's a voting college. and lifestyle guide. Okay, go ahead. I'll shut up.
1: We're getting rid of the Electoral College. That's going to do two things person with the most votes wins the presidency. Two, it'll allow second and third and fourth parties to emerge. Under the Electoral College, if it's winner take all, you could get 33% of the vote and it doesn't, you don't get nothing. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the 60-vote 60, 60 rule in the Senate. That's not in the Constitution. We can get rid of that tomorrow. We're going to end safe gerrymandering. We use natural borders to figure out congressional districts. And if there's a question about you know what, what, what should we do, we should make it so that it's more even. The, the best congressional district would be one that's 50-50, you know, uh, ideally 50% Republican, 50% Democrat. And then guess what? We would we wouldn't be electing Marjorie Taylor Greene. We'd be electing moderates who wanted to govern, not assholes who want you know who wanted to go up there and be jerks. The next thing with eighteen-year terms in both the House and the Senate. Voting should be easy. Often uh, it should be a holiday. It should be it should be like going to the ATM. Uh, the top ten states in uh, top ten states in population get an extra senator. Bottom ten states lose a senator. Uh, we're going to get rid of the one person cut block in the Senate. We're going to take the money out of the campaigns. Everybody knows right now the Democrats and Republicans are bought and paid for before they get to Washington. We should have a campaign of ideas, not about raising money. The Supreme Court should be a 20 year term. Uh, and we, we appoint I was a new... Say 18. Eighteen, go you go right because of the number. Twenty uh, term, you have a, you have a new appointments every two years. And this was a little controversial. I think we need a fifteen percent flat tax on everybody, no exceptions, no nothing. If you're going to pay, so here's the thing: the people that are making the most money are taxed at a higher rate. But they end up the actual rate they pay is nowhere close to 15%. If you let's say you made four million dollars, you had four million dollars in money last year. If we got 15% of four million, or 40 million, or four billion, then we would have tons more money. And speaking of that money, first thing we're going to do is cut the defense budget in half. We're going to cut the defense budget in half, and we're going to get a hard line between the church and the state. And speaking of taxes. Church has got to pay taxes, and health care is going to be a right, and we're going to legalize all drugs tomorrow, not just the illegal ones, the ones in the pharmacy too. And we're going to, you know, buying a gun should be like owning a boat. You're going to take a class. You got to take a class, and you got to, you got to show up and uh, not be crazy. Oh, and guess what? We're going to do something about climate change, and we're going to make abortion safe and legal. Vote Mojo Uh, vote mojo for president on the mushroom party.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah, there was close to that in Canada, and they got some parliament seats at one point. It grew out of a band too. But uh, I'm with you on everything except the flat tax. I think for upper-income people, great. But if you have only made or even netted $10,000 a year, and you lose fifteen hundred bucks. That is a very serious. Well, I think bug. you know,
1: you would you could have a, a minimum. You could have a minimum cutoff. Everybody under 40, you know forty thousand or something doesn't have to pay any taxes. But, but my main concern here is the tax system has got so many loopholes. And, you're right. If you if you make if you have uh, four million dollars or four billion dollars you can hire enough tax lawyers and accountants to where your net your real tax rate ends up being you know I don't know two percent or something and I or I,
0: zero I, if you're Donald Trump
1: and yeah. uh, oh and there's one other thing I wanted to talk about the queen. I fucking hate the queen. I'm glad she's dead. I don't know why anybody in America gives a flying fuck about the queen. What did the queen, did the queen cure cancer? Did she end childhood poverty in England? Did, you know, uh, the queen, what did she do? Here's what she did. She was one, she was born. She was sperm lucky. And two, she wasn't as fucked up and shitty as the rest of her family. Fuck that old lady! I hate the queen. <laughs> I, I like a I like a man. I like. I don't like hereditary. You know, uh, people inheriting fucking wealth and power. Fuck the queen. Uh, anything else you want to talk about, Jello?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, at the very least, there should not be any more of the citizens' taxes going to subsidize a royal family that rich and everything, but you're forgetting one thing that some people claim the Queen accomplished. A- you remember a much earlier crackpot conspiracy theory person who got through to Ed Meese with one of his lieutenants and Star Wars was announced the next day without right. by Reagan without consulting the defense one. You know who we're talking about here? The guy who wanted particle beam weapons and this and that, Lyndon LaRouche. He also went on and on for years that the entire world drug trade was being run by queen elizabeth and with it's one of those conspiracy theories like somebody else like just like think wow if only that really was true but
1: were well, you saying when i got high on illegal drugs i was snorting up the queen was getting a little profit from my snortology <laughs>
0: Well, Lyndon LaRouche thinks so, but we don't know how many drugs he's been—he was on all those years—to come up with this stuff oh, let were, alone, they, be able to manipulate so many people to make him
1: wealthy. Well, I had one other thing I wanted to mention uh, about the war in the Ukraine. You hear a lot of people talking about war crimes. You know, that's a—they're committing war. War is a crime. War is always killing and murder and raping and burning, and civilians always get killed. The crime is. Is, is having a war. The, I, the idea that one type of killing is worse or different than some other killing, when you're dead, you're fucking dead. I just think, you know, war is the crime. They're, you know, not what type of weapon you use, whether or not you used an arrow or a knife or even a, even a poison gas or a nuclear bomb. The problem is killing people. The killing people, it could be, war is all, look, you can say that you know, we had to fight Hitler to keep him from taking over the world. It's still murder. What we did was murder. And, you, know, you, know, you hear all this talk about our troops. What are our troops? Our troops are our paid murderers. They're our paid thugs to go over there and kill some brown people. You know, and anyway, this whole idea, you know, uh, uh, they're committing war crimes. Bullshit. And war is a crime. War is murder. It's, you know, you know anyway. I well,
0: that, that, that's very, very well said. And I've never heard anybody say it quite like that before. Thank you. Okay, let's have some more now. Let's have so, some more of your ideas. I mean, well, like, you know, you, you I remember, a lot of them.
1: I, I think, I don't know if this was in Steal This Book or someone had uh, given it to me and wrote it in there, but I, it might have been in Steal This Book. Killing for peace is like fucking for virginity, you know. And
0: <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. That's a real. I mean, that that might have that, been, that
1: been Abby Hoffman.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe what I should do for a future Renegade Roundtable is go over the quotes in that book and then turn it to ha, have it following questions, and I can interview his ghost.
1: It would be good. You know, um, yeah. um yeah yeah somebody somebody when i was in high school somebody gave me steal this book and somebody else gave me uh fear and loathing and i was like yeah I, and i knew that i wasn't gonna be sticking around danville much longer
0: <laughs> okay you got any other good ones
1: no i think i got i think i got everything on there that uh, uh I did a big rant when uh, the the band played, and I did a rant about Queen of England uh, in Wichita, where we uh, we showed the movie in Wichita at a film festival, the Tall Grass Film Festival, and then the band huh. played afterwards. People laughed at the movie; they laughed in the right places. It went good, but when I went on my psychotic hate-filled rant about the Queen, I could tell I was making some people. Feel... It it really makes me happy. You know, if I can make people wildly uncomfortable, I'm doing my job.
0: <laughs> oh, fully agreed. Here, here. I'll give you a little uh a fist pump on the computer without trying to bonk the computer and
1: screw up the audio.
0: And you know, uh Mojo can
1: fuck up a one-man rock fight. Mojo could tear up anvil. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it sounds like Mojo occasionally is playing with the real Toad Lickers again.
1: Yes, we uh and in fact, uh yeah, we're gonna play on this outlaw country cruise. And we'll play. And there's another cruise next year. And I play this show down in Austin at South by Southwest at the Continental Club. I host this party, and we play at the end. And I'm trying, I'm trying to get the uh, to make it the last show. I've been doing it for over 20 years. A couple of years because of COVID. And I was hoping to get the Beat Farmers, NRBQ, the Waco Brothers, and the Yahoos to to play. And that would be like the big, oh, the old man, you know. Oh, man, three-chord rock and roll. Thank y'all for coming. Uh, But I'm working on that. That might be at Steve Wertheimer's Continental Club down there in Austin, Texas. I warn you
0: now. I warn (laughs) you now when more people see that movie and see the live shows, not just you as a younger guy full of energy and fire and brimstone, but the power of the music itself and that there's Nobody hasn't been anybody else quite like that since. So, once that movie gets around, you, Bullethead is going to get so many people, promoters, bookers, whatever, clamoring to get you back in venues.
1: Well, that, yeah, and, this and, is and where and at die. Least from, like at... tours. tours. Yeah, I think we could and maybe I, play two or three shows. You know, we might be able to play like, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe uh, uh, you know, in a row, but that's when I die in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, in a motel room with what I thought was crank or cocaine, but I was actually snorting borax and it, you know, and it says in the paper, almost famous musician, you know, dies on big comeback tour. Cause look, anybody can play Friday night in San Francisco at Slims or whatever the equivalent is. It's Tuesday Slim's night in Des Moines. Gone, that's the hard work.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah! I, I I have never gotten a gig in Des Moines in my life. Iowa you State never, University, never, University, I, University of Iowa, yeah.
1: But now you're Even right. Got, Hopefully, what will happen is that people will see the movie. Uh, you know, they'll get a little underground buzz among the weirdos, and then uh, there'll be hope. You know, somebody will say, "Yeah, can you play these three shows?" We you know we'll we'll go out and play. Uh, you know. Uh, 20 shows or something, and then that'll be it. Then I can say, okay, that's enough.
0: That's enough. <laughs> you could do your own mojo cruises on the road and rent a big old bus with some bunks in it or have hotels, and then you have a certain group of fans who are willing to pay you, uh, you know, a ticket price. You'd make money and make it all worth it, and then not only would they get to see you in venues, but you'd be serenading them on the bus, too. Uh, Just so yeah. long as you're that's not
1: driving. True. You know, you don't want me to have yeah, well, uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, on the on the cruise. You know, half the people on there hear me on the radio, you know, every day, you know, like when they're driving home. So at some point, uh, you know, I run out of shit to say. First couple of days, I'm, you know, I'm shaking hands. I'm kissing babies. I'm telling stories. But by the fourth day, I can't remember what story I've told to who. And, you know, I started losing my mind. It, it's, get hard, it's hard being mojo.
0: Well, I'm glad you're still willing to work hard and you've still got that energy and fire and brimstone and metabolism. So if any of those little weekend tours, and even a lot of older punk bands do that now because of families and jobs and other things, they'll do two or three shows and then they go home. And sometimes they mainly do them festivals and stuff. But um,
1: yeah, if, you're, right.
0: if you're open to doing that, then for crying out loud, the Bay Area awaits. Or if I'm back in Colorado, then, of course, that awaits as well. And then we can all go track down Dwayne. <laughs> Roust him out of his bed. All right. On that ah. note. Um, on, that, on that note. On that note. I think we've done a good rounded hour and a half. So uh, thank you once again. And if there's all kinds of other things you really wanted to say, record yourself and send it to us as an addendum. And we'll put that in too. In the meantime, you know, to quote Mojo Nixon on the, you can't kill me. I will not die. I mean, people need that every once in a while in their lower moments, very much including me. So Adios, amigos.